alcoholism, substance abuse, and physicians. The doctor as patient. You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and with me today is Dr. Lynn Hankus. Dr. Hankus is Clinical Professor Emeritus at the University of Washington School of Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science. He's served for 13 years as the full-time director of the Washington State Physicians Health Program, and he's among the 100 pioneer physicians in the entire U.S. who passed the first certification exam in addiction medicine. Dr. Hankus, uh, Lynn, thanks for uh, being with us today. We appreciate your taking the time. Good morning, Dr. Cohen. Glad to be here. Lynn, let's uh, talk about, uh, before we get into programs that uh, deal with physicians, let's talk about how did um, you get into this business? What's your background? Well, I was a practicing urologist many years ago and became interested in some physicians I encountered who uh, had alcoholism. And at that time, the uh, Illinois State Medical Society had what is called a, a panel for impaired physicians, which was an early version of physician health program. I became a volunteer for that organization and became aware of the fact that alcoholism was indeed a disease, that physicians were vulnerable to contracting that illness as well as other illnesses, and that they could be successfully identified, uh, intervened upon, and referred away for treatment, and they had some extremely high success rates. And I became familiar with all that as part of that panel and participated in interventions and began doing some education and eventually decided to uh, get into the field of addiction medicine. Quite a change from urology for you. That's correct. You must have felt very strongly about it. Nowadays, we talk about the, quote, problem physician. What does that mean to you? Well, I prefer to view the problem physician in just a little different twist. Uh, I, I prefer to think of them as physicians with problems. And <clears throat> by that, I mean these are primarily physicians who have uh, difficulty with uh, alcohol, with drugs, or physicians whose behavior becomes problematic because of mental illness. There are physicians who deal not so well with the stress disorders. There's a subset of physicians known as the so-called difficult doctor who displays erratic, disruptive-type behavior and has difficulty interacting with the medical staff and patients. There are doctors who have psychosexual disorders. And then, lastly, there are the incompetent or dated doctors whose standard of care falls below the usual acceptance for any locale. And, unfortunately, uh, there's always a few bad apples in the barrel, the so-called unethical physician. Now, physician health programs don't deal with all of those. They only deal with physicians who have medical conditions that could cause impairment. And we can talk more about that as we go along. So when we're talking PHPs or physician health programs, these are dealing with the medical problem physician. Is that fair to say? Yes. Most physician health programs facilitate the rehabilitation of health professionals who have medical conditions that could compromise public safety, and then they monitor their recovery. So in other words, PHPs or physician health programs deal primarily with alcoholism, with drug dependency, with mental illness, because those are the conditions that could cause some impairment. While stress disorders and sexually exploitive physicians and behaviorally disruptive physicians are also possibly impaired, they're not as probably impaired as those with chemical dependency or mental illness. With these PHPs, how did they get started and, well, when did they get started? Well, actually, the first statute, the so-called Sick Doctor Act, was enacted in the state of Florida back in the 70s. And the American Medical Association got very interested in 
physician impairment, and they got started primarily out of a mentality of being your brother or sister's keeper. In other words, uh, organized medicine, both on the national and state levels, became aware of the fact that some of their doctors got sick, and by virtue of having an illness, their patients could subsequently suffer, and the, the, the public would not be well served, and the patients would not be well served. So as a reaching out to touch someone and being a brother or sister's keeper, organized medicine started looking into the problem. And uh, early in the 80s, the AMA inaugurated some national conferences on physician health, and the programs grew from there, and, and states began to adopt the core model and followed suit. Mm-hmm. So it all started back in the 70s. It's been about 40 years now. Right. Do all states have a physician health program now? Well, the growth that has occurred since the 70s has really been phenomenal. Uh, At this point in time, 47 states plus the District of Columbia have a program. The programs have expanded beyond just dealing with drugs and alcohol into dealing with uh, mental illness as well. And in addition, some of these state programs deal with sexual misconduct. They also address physicians who have physical illness, uh, stress disorders. They deal with litigation stress. And some even go a little further with uh, other kinds of life management issues. Mm-hmm. And in addition uh, to that, the number of members that are eligible to join these programs have extended beyond physicians to include other doctorate-level health care providers, such as uh, dentists and podiatrists and psychologists. So a lot, uh, lot more business now, I suspect. Right. PHPs also usually take care of physician assistants. The nurses, on the other hand, uh, usually have their own separate program. Mm-hmm. and so do the pharmacists. But in some states, they're all under one umbrella. Lynn, how do these programs get funded? The funding varies from state to state, but for the most part, these are funded about 45% of the state physician health programs are funded by the state medical association, organized medicine in that state. Mm-hmm. Most of these PHPs have multiple funding sources. 67% are funded by licensing agencies, that is the state medical board. In some states, malpractice insurance carriers also will make significant contributions to the PHP, realizing that what the PHP does is, in essence, risk management at its best. Hospitals also have come to value the mission of PHPs because physician health programs are very sensitive to issues of corporate liability. It can prevent impairment on the job and, and patient harm. Hospitals are very interested in that kind of thing. I'll bet. But it's important to also realize that Most physician health programs, well, actually about a third of them, require that their client physicians, that is the physicians who are in their program under contract, also pay a participant fee. Interesting. User fee, huh? Yeah, and and we think that's very important because it's part of uh, recovery and it addresses the accountability that becomes necessary for sustained recovery. Sure. Well, let's talk about PHPs in a little more detail. Uh, If you had to describe uh, what the pieces or the essential elements of an effective PHP are? Well, how, how would you list those or how would you put those in? Well, the most important piece uh, is that they be legislatively mandated. And in that legislation has to be very clear, unequivocal provision for confidentiality. If a state physician health program cannot operate under the umbrella of confidentiality, Physicians will not self-report, their medical colleagues will not self-report, hospitals won't report because they fear uh, sanctioned by the licensing agency. Confidentiality is a critical piece of the legislation that's necessary to allow these programs to operate. Second essential element is they must be adequately funded. And most of these, as I said, while they are funded by the state licensing agency, 
Those funds, in turn, often come from a surcharge on physician license fees that is especially dedicated to this fund uh, to support the physician health program. Mm -hmm. A physician health program cannot really function real well unless it has the backup of uh, the medical association. It also needs the support of the medical community at large, such as the hospitals and major clinics, uh, malpractice carriers, uh, and the physicians themselves. It's helpful if in that legislation I mentioned earlier, there are provisions for immunity, both for people who report to the physician health program and also for the program itself so that it's not constantly embroiled in all kinds of of litigation. Uh, The biggest and most essential element uh, for an effective health program is to have credibility with and the trust of the state medical board. If that relationship does not exist, if somehow the state medical board thinks you are hiding clients, not being accountable, then they will not allow a physician health program to exist because the state medical board has its primary mission to protect the public. And so does the physician health program. But the physician health program protects the public by identifying these potentially impaired physicians early, preventing actual impairment, and getting them treated and into recovery and then monitoring their recovery. Licensing boards, on the other hand, do that through a disciplinary process. So while the goal is the same, They do it through different mechanisms. However, if that trust and credibility does not exist between the state medical board and the physician health program, the PHP is not effective. Lynn, I get the sense from your comments that in some cases and in some programs, that trust doesn't exist. Yeah, that is true. Unfortunately, there's wide diversity among the states, Gary, with the physician health programs. And that's uh, very similar to the diversity that exists in states with state medical boards. And a lot of it has to do with the laws that are on the books in that particular state and these other elements I mentioned. There's unfortunately a a political component uh, to uh, this whole movement. There's an element of distrust on the part of the public. There's a consumer movement against not only physician health programs but uh, state medical boards as being essentially the fox guarding the hen house and And so all of those things have to be overcome in order for programs to uh, be effective. Well, Lynn, you've given us a uh, good overview of physician health programs. I want to thank Dr. Lynn Hankus, who's been our guest. We've been talking about the doctor as patient and physician health programs. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thanks for listening. Nerve blocks may help symptom control in breast cancer survivors. And breast cancer onset within two years of childbirth worsens the overall prognosis. With this hour's medical news, I'm Dr. Mark Kina. And I'm Sue Bird. In an effort to mitigate the effects of anti-estrogen medications, including debilitating hot flashes and sleep dysfunction in survivors of breast cancer, investigators conducted a pilot study of 13 breast cancer survivors who received stellate ganglion blocks at the anterolateral aspect of the C6 vertebrae. The number of hot flashes dropped from a mean of 80 per week at baseline to 50 per week by week 2 post-procedure and down to 8 by the end of the 3-month follow-up. 
The number of very severe hot flashes dropped to almost zero by the end of follow-up, and the number of nightly awakenings dropped from 20 per week at the beginning of the study down to one a week by the study's end. The study's authors say that long-term relief of symptoms could potentially improve overall quality of life and increase medication compliance. Research in obstetrics and gynecology suggests that the prognosis for premenopausal women diagnosed with breast cancer is impacted by how long it's been since the last time they gave birth. Investigators analyzed data from 123,000 women and a Nova Scotia cancer registry and found that if a woman developed breast cancer within two years of her last birth, she had significantly lower survival prospects than a woman with a five-year period between diagnosis and last birth. Although the findings remain significant even after adjusting for disease severity, the study also found that women diagnosed within five years of their last birth were significantly more likely to be in the later stages of the disease. Studies authors say clinicians should be aware of these findings when examining women in the first five years after a delivery. With Sue Berg, this has been Dr. Markina for ReachMD, XM157 Medical News.